have to break up your fellowship. You know, so just <laughs> stop going over to each other's companies. <laughs> we did. Yeah. All right. So are we good to go, Kyle? Good to go. commentary on what he calls the book of Moses, um, Genesis, and he quotes this poet from a long time ago, Juvenal, or Juvenal, and this is what uh, he says, heaven's high revenge on human crimes behold, though earthly verdicts may be bought and sold, his judge the sinner in his bosom bears, and conscience racks him with tormenting cares. So that's what uh, that was what Juvenal said, and then another one here to share with you. Not that one, not that one, but another one here. We'll speed up the time frame a little bit and look at Shakespeare. I can find where I was at. Oh, it's funny. I it's the only dilemma of working off the computer. Anyways, 
I had it, it's gone, that's okay. I had, there's a quotation from Shakespeare basically making another commentary on the conscience. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what did we uh, learn last week as we looked at what I like to term the worst day ever? Um, what did we conclude after we wrapped up Genesis chapter 3? <coughs> Okay, and what what about it, Toby? What uh, what did what are some of the observations that we took reading through the text and looking through the text, and what were we observing? Um, any more anything more specific than that? Um, well, I mean, we've got into like metaphysics. And, and, would be another way to basically what would be another way to term metaphysics? The nature of reality. Has, has changed. So, yep, we talked about that, and it did. Most of you were here. Hell was basically introduced on Earth. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It's a. It's a depressing state. Um, we talked about. The effect of the fall. We talked about a lot of things that I think just as Genesis 3 is looked at, the fall happened, they ate the fruit, and we move on. And there's way more going on there. And, um, and I'm trying to really interact with if this is the case, why did this take place? Um, and this is all tied into later on when we start teasing out the nature of man and then salvation and how God actually saves. And then we're gonna look at church history for a couple weeks where these topics never seem to go away. They always, get, they always get ruminated once again, brought up again, talked about over and over again. And then it always really hinges back on what perspectives you take on who we really are. So, and with that, so that's, that's that. I wanna mention some other stuff here. People who have summarized some of the stuff a little better than myself, and actually a lot better than myself, but um, we did talk about this issue of covenant. We did talk about the breaking of this covenant, um, but I also mentioned at the beginning of the, these sessions some of the, the texts that I utilize or some that I've, I've read, but uh, this is Burkhoff in his uh, manual on Christian doctrine, and uh, I think he sum this does a really good summary of, of what has happened. So, what he calls the immediate imputation of sin. So, that is the state we're in now. So, basically, it says, according to this view, Adam stood in the twofold relation to his descendants. He was the natural head of the human race, the progenitor of all the children of men. To this natural relationship, God added the covenant relationship, in virtue of which Adam was also the representative head of all of man's descendants. So when he sinned in this representative capacity, the guilt of his sin was naturally imputed to all, those whom he represented. And as a result of this, I would basically, he says they, but we are all born in a corrupt state. This theory explains why the descendants of Adam are responsible only for the one sin which he committed as head of the covenant, 
and why they are not responsible for the sins of their forebears, and why Christ, who is not a human person, does not share in the guilt of Adam. So, and then he has a couple uh, addendums here on um, basically it's unavoidable when you're taking on this kind of stuff. You, you, have, you have, have some sort of theological apparatus to kind of explain what it is we're actually trying to talk about. Now, for us in the Reformed tradition, we know this now as post-Genesis 3, we have titled this, Man is Totally, Utterly Depraved, Corrupt, Broken, In Sin. Not just a sinner, but he is in sin. And so we use that phraseology to explain what we mean by that when you're having conversations with people about how we would eventually define how God actually saves. So Burkhoff continues here as of what we mean by depravity, and I'm going to make an anecdote here on this. So this does not mean that every man is as bad as he can be, that he can't do any good in the sense of the word, or has absolutely no sense of admiration of true, the good, and the beautiful, but simply that the inherent corruption extends to every part of man's nature. Now, I'll give you an example of this. So at the swim meet yesterday, they have a young man there that has swam, how many years, Jonah, the last four? Three years, four years? And he, he starts off the meet, but he is really very disabled. And, and anyways, accommodation for him. And it's a, it is, and it's an inspiring sight to see him do what he does. So, and you think of Burkhoff describing this, there's an example of man can actually act that way. Okay? And it, 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 everyone in the whole room is crying, watching this young man do his thing. So it, it doesn't mean that he can't do stuff like we witnessed yesterday. Okay? Um, but it does uh, basically... Those in the past, and we'll get to some of these folks, we will talk about a man named Pelagius, we'll talk about Socinians, we'll talk about Arminians, and dealing with the text, that, or dealing with their perspective, which we would say is really an inconsistent expression and understanding of the fall. And then he says here about inability. Okay, here again, it's necessary to distinguish. Reformed theologians generally maintain that the sinner is still able to perform natural good or civil good or civil righteousness. And I think you can just look around our country and recognize we have the capacity for structure and order and not chaos. And, um, but um, he may perform acts and manifest sentiments that deserve the sincere approval and gratitude of their fellow men. Um, yet, when these works are considered in relation to who God is, um, there, there's no relation there at all. So they, they're just not sufficient. Okay, and moreover, man cannot change his fundamental preference for sin for love of God. And that's the condition that we're in. And he gives a whole litany of texts. And so speaking of the text, we're now going to go to Genesis 4. And I'll be reading out of the ESV. And my intention today, so this is the third session of us doing this. Um, I'm not going to get really, really into all the little minutia of Genesis 4 through 11, which we know as what, what is termed, once again, some theological parlance. We call it the prime evil era, the creation of man, the fall of man, etc., and on and on. So 
But we'll look at this at the macro level and kind of go over this. So in Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to the famous story of Cain and Abel. Okay? And we did the quotations earlier with the poetry is see this expression of conscience. This presence of conscience. And so... I'm just, I'll, I'll just, I, I told you guys, asked you to think about something in your past. And so um, when I was a little boy, uh, let's see, first grade, not kindergarten, um, my teacher kept butterscotch candy and peppermint candies in the drawer of her desk. And I would watch her periodically to figure out which drawer they were in. And the practice back then when I was in first grade is when the end of the school day, they lined everybody out into the hallway and then they walked the class out together and out the door. And I would always find some excuse to tarry to get to the lineup because I would run to the front of that desk and snatch some of those butterscotch candies and, and take off of them. But I remember walking home. I had a short walk back to where I lived at the time and I'd be eating that butterscotch candy, but I knew, I knew that that was not... That was not right. There was something very wrong about what I was doing stealing that candy. So anyways, all right, we're introduced to Cain and Abel. Okay? I'm not going to get into the discourse that people have done on why the offerings were accepted, not accepted, etc. That's really not the, the gist of what I'm, I'm trying to do here. But uh, they do make the offerings, verses 3 and 4, chapter, and for whatever reason... Now, this, this really needs to be emphasized, and I, I hope that you guys see this. If, if God doesn't want to have favor for Cain's offering, that's his prerogative. It, he, and he doesn't, he, there's no reason, you cannot demand an explanation from him for this. He just, he doesn't consider the offering, okay? Um, so Cain was very angry, we see, and his face fell. And then another thing, too, in 4, Genesis 4, I hope you see, too, that this relationship that, that mankind has with his creator, the creature, the creator, and they're, they're having this discourse, and it's a, it's a phenomenal discourse. But, so the Lord says to Cain, why? And why has your face fallen? I think some translations use countenance, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, which I like the way the ESV renders that, but you must rule over it. Well, that's, that's interesting. Is this uh, a sleight of hand? Is this God and mockery, so to speak? I'm not saying it is. I'm, I'm asking you guys. This is an interesting passage of the Scripture. You ever thought about it or given some thoughts to it? I think God is letting Cain know that he knows what's going on in the heart of mind, but he's willing to talk about it. Yeah, okay. And so he's giving him a choice, a time, Basically, repent and do right. Okay. Anyone else? 
What do we know from chapter 3 that we can apply to Cain? Yeah, his condition certainly, he's the offspring of Adam for sure. But what, what, what do we know about the creation? The the, what's that? Like his order of birth? Not order of birth. Fallen. Okay, fallen. And what is the result of the fallen? What, what's God's observation after the fall? They now know. There you go. So Cain has countenance. He knows that his thoughts are not right. And so um, he recognizes this, but at the same time, this is what I'm saying with sleight of hand, is, is God telling Cain to do something that he actually can do? With fallen man, we don't necessarily do every evil thing, but we are capable. That, that is, is part of what sin has done to us. We are capable of all of these. I think maybe that he's telling him to recognize that fact that there's more going on here. Um, that just uh, you're going to see him actually lash out at his brother um, in his anger. Yeah. And to me that's the first thing that happened at the fall was um, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. Well, Cain is going to blame, blame Abel for his problems because Abel um, was accepted, Eve wasn't. Okay. Any, anyone else before I continue on? I was thinking of God's sovereignty and man's accountability. Okay. So God expects man to be obedient, yet in the fallen nature, we choose what we want to choose, which is sin. Yeah. So the narrative in the whole chapter, too, and not, try not to lose sight of this, because the point I'm, I'm going to try to make here is this. Yes, he's going to murder his brother, but his issue is not with his brother. His issue is with God. So that's the bigger narrative that's actually taking place here, because the conversation is going to continue on between God and him again after the murder transpires. So that's the main issue. This is him um, basically in angst against his creator. So um, it's desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. He gets killed. And then you get into this part of the narration. Now, once again, are we to believe that the sovereign of the universe does not know <coughs> what has transpired? So... Why the dialogue? It's like a parent with a kid. Yeah. You know, what's going on? Get them to think about it and to understand what they're doing. And I know exactly what you did. Yeah. But that's, I'm going to get you to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a great scene of just the creature, us, our creator, and the avarice of this relationship that exists. It's just a, we're in constant, it's a constant fight. And it's a, it's a condition that man can't alleviate, but it is really the nature of the condition. There's the creature, the creator, and how that, how that works together. So, um, 
Where is Abel your brother? Simple question. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, the, the, the sentiment between God and Cain. Of course he knows. He knows. So it's just lies, denials, and this is just, this is what sin looks like. Even though it's the first murder, this, there's more going on here than just the murder itself. This is the relationship in the condition that it finds itself in. So, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother, of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So, something that I read this week on this is, it, you know, like in our, in our world today, um, it appears that evil just has this upper hand. And what I was reading, and one of the things I read on this is to, to meditate on the fact that God sees all. There is nothing that's going on in the world that will not have some sort of an accounting that is taking place. Your, your brother's blood Christ me from the ground. I, was, I just never, I don't think I think on it very much, but there is nothing that's transpiring that he does not see. So, um, anyways, so then you also have this sense of just, it's wild, but the, Cain is discovered, it takes place, and then basically the Lord says, what have you done? And basically, where, where'd I go? Text is kind of small. Cain says to the Lord in 13, he receives his punishment, you shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Now, has anyone ever wondered why God just doesn't take him out? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, this is interesting. Some of the reading I've done on this, and you, if you meditate on it, it makes sense, because he's going to get his thing, which is basically banishment. And Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Because he's now completely out of community. And this is something that we are desirous of, this community. It is part of who we are as creatures. And this is going to be taken from Cain. Um, and then basically, not only that, but no one will have the right or the ability to exact some sort of justice on him. God prevents that from taking place. It's just, it's just sealed off. It's really fascinating when you think about it. Um, it's kind of like life in prison. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so he's having to remember what he has done. Yeah, forever. yeah, exactly. Um, but just, yeah, the banishment. But, and at the same time, uh, Cain says, back to the Creator, this is too much. I mean, <laughs> you're telling God that His judgment upon you is not the accurate judgment, not the correct judgment. Um, it's fascinating we think about. I mean, we see the corruption, it, it picks up an accelerating rate of, of what takes place. Can you think of a place in the New Testament where a similar discourse happens, where someone basically, even in the midst of the being punishment, starts acting like Cain just did here. The parable of the Lazarus um, No. No, that's that's where I was. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking. And what happens in that dialogue? What is it? <coughs> the Lazarus and the rich man. Yeah. 
That's right. And he's trying to get some comfort. Yeah. I mean, even in the midst of being in punishment, he's making demands. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, and we see this from Cain. This is, this is too much. Who do you think you are I mean, punishing me like this? Um, and then basically that wraps up kind of the point I wanted to make on, on chapter four. I'm not going to get into Cain's wife and all of that stuff. It's, it's not necessary. Um, we get some insights into some other people uh, at the end and some of the things that they're contributed to, musical instruments, etc. cetera. Uh, chapter five... We get basically the descendants, this whole list of who they are, the years in which they live. But we get to chapter 6. All right. And the, this text, is this is the sovereign word of God. We have no reason to think other than about it. And so what we read here, uh, believe and believe in truth. So man... Multiplies Now, I don't... There's been a lot of people who have made attempts at the rate of multiplication for mankind. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, um, some of the stuff that I've read, clearly, in today's day and age, people clearly wait much, much longer to either get married and have children or whatever. But biologically speaking, we don't really, <coughs> excuse me, know the rate at which people populated the earth could be significantly faster than we thought. So, but anyways, they multiply on the face of the land. And the daughters are born to them. The sons of God, I will give my personal take on this. I mean, I do think that this, the Nephilim, that these are supernatural beings. That's just my take on it. Um, uh, the sons of God, they marry daughters. So not only do we see corruption and, on the creatures, us, but we also see it in those who were created in the spiritual realm, their defilement, all of this taking place. But the point of, of where I'm going is, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention, so 6-5, um, the word every in the Hebrew, this, a better way to render it would be whole. His whole uh, intention, all of his intention, um, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And just I'm stop right there. Do you see that? We, yeah, we see it in, in unsaved. Okay. I'm thinking terrorists. It oh. Seems, it seems like, you know, the stuff they do, most people would say, how could you do that? Sure. So th this is a commentary on the creation to this point. And this is, prior to our conversion, every single one of us. So what do you, what do, you do with this? If... If this is the case, if this is the truth, um, what do you what do you do with it? Thank God I'm saved. <laughs> it's, like I mentioned, it's a miracle. It is. Yeah. Um, it's just that 
this is bad. This is really bad. There is, there's no hope for man here. This is, like I said, the rate at which the depravity actually manifests itself is really, really bad. Um, this, briefly, I'll just mention in verse 6 regarding the Lord's um, regretting. Um, we have to use things called accommodation in language. Okay, the Lord here is not like you and I. This is not something, you know, that this kind of just communicates to us what, what the condition of the triune God and how they're looking at their crea creatures. Um, so then, in seven, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. This is wild. Man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. To those individuals later on in church history who are going to try to contrive some ability within the creature, it's so bad, the triune God is going to kill everything. If there was any remnant of ability, any remnant of what is in us, why, why kill everything? You ever think about this? Except he doesn't. He doesn't. You know, um, yeah, you do. But the point of uh, to see there is, yeah, this is bad. This is so bad. He's going to kill all life. <coughs> we get Noah. Um, what takes place with Noah in the ark? That all takes place. The judgment is carried upon the creation. And then we get to verse, we get to basically chapter... Eight, like I said, I'm, I'm just doing a macro here. I know you all know these stories. And God creates a covenant with Noah. And God blesses Noah and the offspring to basically create again. Now, I, I you know, God is God. I don't know his mind. I don't know why we're going to do this kind of all over again in the natural state. But basically, God blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you should not eat flesh with its life. And on and on and on. So I think we talked about this in the first session. The doctrine of man, biblically understood. We see it manifest inappropriately in a lot of ways. I, I've seen it manifest in like natural resource management. But it, if it's God's way we probably wouldn't be having a lot of issues that we do have in those realms. Um, you know, I mentioned, I think, the example of the grizzly bear. Who's managing who? We should be managing them. 
not them us. But uh, once again, then in nine six, what we have here again is a reiteration of the Imago Dei. And then there's an interesting thing here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, have you ever meditated on why um, the shedding of blood would take place from mankind now? Whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever kills, by man himself shall his blood be shed. But the question is, why, why do we get to do the bloodshedding now? Why, why, why is man doing this? Because he's made in his image. I mean, we are made in the image of God, but just, did you notice that? So this is why we can say with confidence on certain issues we see today that the Christian has a, a better understanding on these matters. It's not that abortion is not a political thing. It's a biblical thing, and we take it seriously. I'm not going to get into the nuances of theonomy and all of that, but it's just an interesting observation. Whoever sheds the blood of man, so we can infer that more bloodshed's probably going to happen. By man shall his blood be shed. There's something going on here with the image of God, man in the image of God, and when we see, like you were talking about, when we see evils that occur on the earth, there's a resonance within us to see that there's something wrong with this. So, um, because, why? Because God made man in his own image. And it's just something to, to not lose sight of. I'm thinking too that it's kind of the beginning of uh, governments. Yes. man is to rule over, you know, rule over themselves under God's authority. Yeah. God to do all the judging. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing with um, reading on these topics on executions. You know, when an execution is occurring, there's a lot of emotions that are that's pretty, pretty intense emotions. And yet at the same time, there's a kind of a sadness. And so the image bearers have to bear out this judgment on one of their fellow image bearers. And it's just... It's justice and sadness. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, I'm just wondering, and I could be totally off, but in in a way, could it be a? I'm just wondering if it could be a way of how God is exercising His work of sanctifying man through, um, like, obviously it doesn't perfect us in that mm -hmm. way to to because we're going to judge wrongly, right? But it's reminding our hearts and our consciences of what is good and right and true by bringing us to have a reckoning in our in our own culture in our own yeah um, so doing research for this <clears throat> when we get to the church history portion um, the orthodox the orthodox church so their take on on the uh, being excommunicated from the garden etc judgments they actually call them mercies <coughs> Um, interesting take on it. We'll talk about it. Um, but they, so in, uh, kind of like that, they see it as a mercy. So. Just an observation that this was not an active when it came to 
king. And that's God's mercy and his grace towards, really, when you think about it, probably Adam. Mm. <laughs> Not having to kill his yeah. son since, since the judgment is to be executed. Sure. Jake, did you have your hand up? Yes. Uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting, too, is look at how long Adam lived. But Mac and Adam, you know, what back then, Noah's father, uh, had the opportunity to interact with each other for 400 years. Sure. And so Adam had, was still alive and had a chance to influence whatever the population was in a way that um, could have changed some of what happened. Yeah. But much like that happened in the garden, things still kept going. And Adam, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, let's see what I got here. I see what you're saying. As maybe you've seen constructed and um, maybe, well, it's a good, I'm going to note on that. I'm, that's a whole repentance discussion in the Old Testament. Sorry. No, it's a good one. And I, I was going to be a Weisenheimer and say, well, God does in fact elicit repentance. So you're not going to get a clearer example than that than the conversion of Paul instantly repented, instantly converted. So, but let me make a note here. Okay. Like I said, we're just, we want to stay at the macro level here. I'm not going to get into the descendants of Cain. Canaan, uh, we have the table of nations is what chapter 10 is known as. Um, you can read all of the table of nations. And then we do get to 11. Got a little bit of time here left. Make sure I got all of the stuff I wanted to make comment on, commented on. Um, I found my quote I wanted to share earlier of Shakespeare, but um, basically Shakespeare said, the worm conscience which benaws the soul. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, um, okay, so just review. Creation, creation was good. And we talked, we had a discussion on perfection and for what perfection does not mean. Do you guys remember that? Something could be perfect and yet it's not changeable. Right? It can be affected. It has to be the conclusion you come to when you see what takes place at the fall. So, good creation, not immutable. What else? We got fall, and what happened at the fall? What are some of the things we've already talked about? Some of the little stuff. Strange from God, from each other, from the earth, 
Yep. Death. Death. Now we have, we have issues of conscience. We have issues of motive. We have murder. Anything else? Hard work. Hard work. No one, you, no one's commented on that. Yeah, yeah. The creation itself. Thorn and, and thistles. Thorn and thistles, literally, and um, whatever, you know. I'm sure Tim is dealing with thorns and thistles right now this time of year. So, um, not, uh, yeah, work in general just becomes this burdensome thing. Are we talking about just what's the result? Yeah, we're just talking about kind of a review here. There is a promise of, of future redemption. There is. Genesis 3.15, the early gospel, basically. Um, I had a little discussion about it. It always seems like, too, that I'm not trying to turn God into an Arminian God, but the relationship, the creature, the creator, and he makes these means. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard to, to really fathom, but we have the Genesis 3.15 command, the coming of the Messiah. He is going to redeem a people. Um, that's what he does. And you see that interplay between him and his creature. You know, Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows where they're at. Did, did you do what you weren't supposed to do? You know, Cain, where, where's your brother? You know, and there's, there is all of that that takes place there. Um, and understanding who we really are. So um, next week we will be, well, if we got time, I might actually just do it today too. Um, but it gets us to 11, which is the infamous Tower of Babel. Now this is mankind doing what mankind can, but naturally doing it the way mankind would when he is basically um, in opposition to the God that created him. So the whole earth has one language. Um, the people migrate from the east. They end up in Shinar. They settle there. And then they do this. And they say amongst themselves, now, here we go. Created, fallen, everything killed, Everything comes back in multiplication. The planet is populated once again. There's this thread, but there's a fault in our DNA now, so to speak. Right? So it, here, in, here again in 11, it manifests itself. Um, they said one to another, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, bitumen for mortar, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Folks, there's no getting out from underneath this. This is in all of us. You don't get out from this. This is just who we are. Um, the last it, phrase was, and not be dispersed. That's right. When God said, be dispersed. That's right. So um, they're going to try to build themselves a city. They want to reach it to heaven. They want to make a name for themselves. And as Cindy just said, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now this is the part that's just wild. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That's fitting. Children of man. And the Lord said, Behold, we... The Trinity, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only be the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So we, the Trinity, we're going to put a stop to this. We are not, this is, when, this is the part I want you to capture. God is not going to let us engage in self-rule. He's not going to let us engage in autonomy, independence from Him. And so, to give you a modern-day example of this, just in our own lives, this is what we do. We go around, we try to order our lives, we dust off windowsills, we clean things, and it's dirty again, and it's dusty again. <coughs> and remind yourself, this is you engaging in your own autonomy all the time, trying to keep things ordered, trying to keep things... Coming back yesterday, I was sitting there thinking, man, I was just so frustrated because of the conditions we were driving in. And what I was just, I was not getting my way in this travel home. This is just how this, this is just in you. And so, but at the same time, there is a mercy there. You know, God loves his people. And he's not going to let his creatures do whatever they want. And so he intervenes here. Everyone, everyone see that, I, I hope. He, you know, he's not going to let us govern ourselves. Um, and we'll see that throughout. I got <coughs> about 10 minutes. Any comments or questions? And I think I'll be able to actually go to something in, that's on the thing. But let me go look for my, my phrase there or where I'm heading. Anybody? I just thought for the flood um, that, that that's kind of where my head went with your last thought was he didn't, his intention was never to just end sin then. Correct. It was to, to bring it to the remembrance of his creation that he is God, mm -hmm. that he is ruling, and he's not, he's not going to um, abdicate his throne. He's not going <laughs> to stop being who he is. Nope. And, um, and, and also, it's also reminding us that we're not going to stop being who we are yeah. apart from what he's promised and how he says he's going to cause that to be. That's right. And it's been reiterated already numerous times, but like I said, if you're here, knowing that this was the condition we were all in, and you're here and not in that condition any longer, you just meditate on that for a little while. If that doesn't bring you to your knees at some point in your life, um, it should. It really should. Trevor? Um, it seems like the Tower of Babel story um, illustrates that there is never going to be a political utopia on Earth. Mm. Sure. Yeah, you, you can just look at the current expression of it and uh, how awful of a job, not just in our own country, but around the world. It's just, but once again, that, that is an expression of man trying to control his world and it uh, failing at every juncture. And if they're not doing it through that, you see it through a religious means or usually in a strict form of some form of religion and that'll try to make things right with man. Okay, let me see if that's where I want to be. Yeah. When we think of the Tower of Babel, we often think about the confusing of the languages. Yeah. 
but what something, something <coughs> nobody really talks about is the disbursement that takes place. Yeah. I just find that very interesting that mm -hmm. and God dispersed them. <laughs> yeah. um, mm -hmm. You're not going to do it on your own. Yeah, you're not going to fill the earth. <laughs> well, you, you bring up an excellent point, Tim. So um, at the era when the Soviet Union was coming to an end, uh, one of the uh, few first countries that actually separated early, I think, was Mongolia. But there was all these um, um, kind of the hip language that was being used at the time regarding um, the business language. And everybody know what the business language is around the world? English. And what are all these other countries that don't speak English doing? Learning the business language of the world, English. It just it pretty pretty wild, but... I got uh, a little bit of time here. Any other comments or questions? That makes course corrections throughout history, and it, it, it's in terms of man, not not his not his plans. His plans don't change. Not his, his promises are, are sure, but at the same time, you can look at it, history and you can see the course corrections God has made, and because of who and what man is, he's mm -hmm. had to. Um, some of them are small, some of them are large. Yeah. I think a large one's coming, but that's just looking at the fact that the entire world is going bonkers. But um, <laughs> he, he's still in charge. He's sovereign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we're going to, I'm going to show you how sovereign he is here, and I'll wrap this up. Um, I'll squeeze this in, and then next week we'll find ourselves in the New Testament with some expressions of some of this stuff. But in the last few chapters of the book of Job, if you've read Job either recently, lately, or aware of actually the, the construct of the book, okay, where the Lord actually answers Job. I'm not going to get into the whole diatribe because what I want you to see is this. Um, in Starting in 38, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and immediately, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You don't know what you're talking about. So that's, 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 that's sufficient right there. But then he goes into the actual categories of what he actually has done. Um, and then I want you to see this. Okay. Um, in 40... Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And who argues with God? Let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? Now look at this. I lay my hand over my mouth. I don't know what I'm talking about. We don't know what we're talking about. You do not, cannot, truly understand the triune God. Okay, um, and at the uh, okay, so the thing I, I think is every time I, I look at this passage and read it, reread it, oh man, what in the world? Because I would think the first go around with Job was enough. And that's a shellacking, basically covering all of those categories. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind again. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I mean, once, sure, 
twice. Now, do you ever ask yourself, why a second round of this? Because to me, this is analogous. If you ever, unfortunately, if you've ever seen a street fight between two guys, and basically one guy is getting the better of the other, and then a bunch of people intervene and say, all right, all right, all right, he's had enough. Stop, stop, stop. Anybody seen, my, seen this? Well, God says, step aside. I'll tell you when he's had enough. Because he's going to leave no quarter for man. Zero. We will receive zero. So that's what I think when I look at this text. And at the end of all of that, I remember the first time I read this, and I completely missed it. Job has this confession, and I, I know you can do all things. Um, okay. <laughs> Here it is. The very end of, uh, in verse 10 of 42. And the Lord restores Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So, I remember the first time I kind of went back, and did I just read that correctly? So. I think that's speaking to the sovereignty of God. Even absolutely. Satan was the, was the means of how Job was. That's right. And you can blame Mrs. Frankenberg because she brought up sovereignty. But the point of this passage is man will, God will give no quarter to who he is. Okay? And so that's, that's the nature of this relationship. So by his grace, he's made himself known to us, which is phenomenal. Um, like I said, if you meditate on it, if you agree with the, what the text says regarding our condition, our state, our fate, death, disease, dying, all of this horrible stuff, completely destroyed, completely recreated, and yet here we are trying to run our lives, these autonomous lives of ours, and we still do that. And God still will intervene in your life. <laughs> He's going to bring dust under the door sills. He's gonna, your house is going to break. Water pipes are going to freeze. It's just um, it basically, that's who he is. The gist of the Job passage is, we don't know what we're talking about. Just think about that for a second. We have revelation by the Spirit, we have, but at the end of the day, we really, we really don't know what we think we know. Okay? So Nick... Yes. But the comparison is... Yeah. And, and we, we do and we do have his revelation to us. And through the Spirit, we can infer as we read about him and his love for his people, because he does have a people, and he is still going to have a people. Um, but really just capturing how, how you know, messed up man really is. Sarah? Well, and how created. Because yeah. God's the creator. No. We are never gonna we will never be the creator. I mean that's that 
we are not, we are always going to be the creative thing. Yeah. And so to think that we can, but, but let Satan has deceived all flesh, mm -hmm. to believe that they can lift themselves up to a level to know and be like a creator. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you see its manifestations to this day all around us. So, and that's, that's kind of the beginning of this or the textual stuff. Next week we'll go into the New Testament and we'll look at some other passages, some classics, and tease out that the continuity of the condition doesn't change. It's just, it just doesn't change. And the benefit of actually having a, a right understanding of this doctrine. Um, I think the reformers got it right. They got us back on track. They recaptured. It's one of the, if, when people ask or describing reformed theology, it is definitely one characteristic that comes out. The proper order of the creator-creature relationship. That gets back where it belongs. So, um, so you see that written extensively by many. So, and uh, God gets the glory. So, any other parting comments, questions? We are incredibly um, blessed to have His Word. Yeah. Otherwise, we would have no way really observing His, his world, but to understand Him at all. Yeah. And we don't understand most of it. No. Because of who He is, but He's an incredible God. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm going to pretty much be done here, Kyle, on time, so I'm going to shut the mic off. But um, 